Hello and welcome to 202 Decades of Western History. Last time we raced through all of human prehistory, from the first migrations out of Africa, to the strange world of the last ice age, to Neolithic hunter-gatherers, to early farmers and steppe herders, from the first cities to the first writing and the advent of history. This time we'll be covering just a few thousand years instead of a hundred thousand. Now that we've reached recorded history, there's a vast amount more we can say about any event. So, in an episode like this one, we will have to skip over even more, and what we do cover will be surface level. We will be sprinting through history. My hope for these prologue episodes is that they provide a framework off which we can build the rest of the series, which will solely focus on our most recent 202 decades. Now, let's jump back into the Mesopotamian world. Part 1. Despite its place as the oldest civilization, our knowledge of the Sumerians is relatively recent. The people we consider ancient, the Greeks, Romans, and Persians, had no memory of them. The Greek writer Herodotus, born in 484 BC, often considered to be among the first historians, never mentions the Sumerians. They were for him beyond ancient, and further removed from him than he is from us today. For the ancients, Egypt seemed to be the oldest civilization, perhaps because of its relatively stable linguistic and political continuity. In the past 17 decades, however, archaeology has advanced rapidly. In the 1850s, in the sun-baked deserts of modern Iraq, some of the cuneiform writings were recognized as coming from a non-Semitic language, and the name Sumerian was first used for this early southern Mesopotamian people. Today we know that the civilization of Sumeria predates Egypt. Eridu and Uruk seem to have been some of the earliest centers of culture, economy, and political power. As we saw last time, about 3,500 BC, that's 550 decades ago, writing took hold and began to spread. At the same time, political and cultural power of the Sumerian city-states began to expand. While written documents from this period survive, much of our knowledge of this period still comes from archaeology. This era, called the Uruk period, is marked by mass production of pottery, growing cities, and rising populations. This rising population saw cities become both bigger and denser, and saw the export of the Uruk culture north and eastward, up the rivers into northern Mesopotamia, and across the Zagros Mountains into modern Iran. Of course, this didn't happen overnight. This prologue is guilty of the error that this podcast format is designed to avoid, condensing long periods of time in the remote past. The heyday of the Sumerian city-states lasted over a thousand years. It's all too easy for us to skip past that millennia and look ahead to their successors. But let's add a few notes on their legacy before moving on. During the height of Sumerian history, around 2800 BC, in Uruk, a king named Gilgamesh reigned. We know very little of the historical figure, save for his mention in a few engravings and an appearance on a later list of kings, but he must have left an extraordinary impression. In stories dating 800 years later, we hear the earliest snippets of the Epic of Gilgamesh, wherein this king of Uruk struggles to find the secret of eternal life, with help or harm from the gods. Before saying farewell to the Sumerians, we should acknowledge their influence on our daily lives. 
Writing is their most publicized invention, but our concepts of time have them to thank as well. It is in their base 60 system of numbers that we get our seconds and our minutes, and it's from them that we get the 360 degrees in a circle. The Sumerians with their city-states were too independent to ever unite for long under one ruler. So, while they were the first civilization in history, the honor of the world's first multi-ethnic empire would go to their conquerors. Over the course of the 3rd and 2nd millennium BC, the chief language of Mesopotamia began to shift from the Sumerian of its founders to a Semitic language originating in the north, Akkadian. The Akkadians adopted much of the culture of Sumeria and slowly gained power over their southern neighbors. Around 2300 BC, in the city of Akkad, along the Tigris River, a king named Sargon rose to power. He was not of royal blood, but through cunning and charisma, rose through the ranks until, when opportunity arose, he rebelled and usurped the throne. Short on pedigree, but not hubris, he gave himself the title, King of Universal Dominion. At the same time Sargon became king, to his south, the king of Uruk, Lugalzagesi, was busy expanding and conquering his neighbors. Either inspired by his southern neighbor, or in response to him, the Akkadians under Sargon began their own rapid expansion. Before long, the two expanding powers came to battle, and Sargon's forces won, captured Lugalzagesi, and carried him back to Akkad as a prisoner. But the Akkadians were not done with the conquest of Uruk. The king of universal dominion would not be satisfied until all of the world was under his control. He conquered all of Sumeria to the Persian Gulf, expanded his empire northward into the Taurus Mountains, and pushed his borders to the Mediterranean shores, then the very edge of the Mesopotamian world. Never content, his armies marched further still, into modern Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain. Sargon would rule for 55 years as the first emperor of history. Unlike the long millennia of Sumerian history, the Akkadian Empire built in blood would soon end in blood. Just 180 years after its founding, the empire Sargon had built fell apart. At least two factors led to the fall of the Akkadian Empire, political mismanagement and climatic conditions. The last kings of the empire lacked the wisdom and ambition of Sargon. Written records stopped being maintained, public safety was not enforced, and, worst yet, the life-sustaining agricultural infrastructure was neglected. The timing couldn't have been much worse. At the same time, an extreme drought began across the Near East. Archaeological evidence finds the remains of whole herds of famished sheep and towns abandoned as the population left to find wetter lands. Sensing weakness, the cities of Mesopotamia revolted and became independent once again. But the precedent of empire had arrived, and there was no rolling back the clock. Soon, the Sumerian city of Ur captured all of Sumeria, but mostly left the north of Mesopotamia alone. This dynasty lasted about a century, but the drying climate brought new problems for the people of Mesopotamia. Around 2000 BC, a nomadic people called the Amorites migrated from the Levant, that's modern Israel and Palestine, into Mesopotamia and conquered much of the area. At the same time, the Elamites from southern Iran invaded and destroyed the fledgling empire of Ur. The north of Mesopotamia was spared from the worst of this destruction. 
Perhaps because of this, these people began to form a separate cultural identity. They weren't Akkadians or Sumerians. They were Assyrians. The Assyrians formed one of the two poles in the next phase of Mesopotamian history, the other being the city of lasting legend and infamy, Babylon. Under the rule of the Akkadian Empire, Babylon was just a small city on the Euphrates River. It grew slowly over the centuries and became a fusion of Sumerian and Akkadian people and culture. After the fall of Ur, Babylon began to take precedence in the area. For the sake of our story, the only name you need to remember for the test is Hammurabi. He not only established Babylon as the predominant power in the region, but under his rule, one of the earliest written law codes has been preserved. The Code of Hammurabi. This was a written law carved into a stone stele about two meters tall. The code was written in the common language of the people, Akkadian, so that anyone could read it, not that many would have been literate at the time. The law is one of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Punishments were to be in proportion to the crime committed. In the prologue to the code, Hammurabi states, When the god Marduk commanded me to provide just ways for the people of the land in order to attain appropriate behavior, I established truth and justice as the declaration of the land. I enhanced the well-being of the people. The Assyrians and Babylonians would fight and conquer each other intermittently for the next several centuries. Around 1600 BC, a new power emerged at the periphery of the Mesopotamian world, the Hittites. The Hittites spoke an Indo-European language, a descendant of the language spoken by those steppe herders who conquered much of Europe, who we talked about last time. From linguistic language reconstructions, it seems the Hittite language may have been the first branch of the Indo-European family tree to split off. Or maybe Hittite is only a close cousin of Indo-European. The debate is still raging on. In complete ignorance of the linguistic debate they would one day produce, the Hittites built an empire that stretched across Anatolia and into the northern portions of the Levant and Mesopotamia. The full history of the Hittites goes back much further. According to the majority theory, the Hittites split off from the rest of the Indo-Europeans very early, around 4000 BC, and moved into Anatolia. Their arrival into the area seems to have followed the pattern of later Indo-European expansion, but to a smaller degree. The Hittites seem to have conquered the local people and set themselves up as chieftains. They passed down their language but left little to no genetic impact on the Hittites who lived during the peak of their empire. They had interacted with the Assyrians of northern Mesopotamia for centuries and adopted their cuneiform writing system. For centuries, the Hittites were a fragmented culture, separated in their own city-states, much as the Sumerians were. Then, around 1600 BC, a king named Hattusili expanded his power from Hattusa, his capital city located close to the geographic center of modern Turkey. Hattusili's ambitions brought his armies as far as Aleppo in modern Syria, which he attacked but did not capture. But the empire he built did not long endure after his death. The Hittite Empire expanded and contracted several times over the next several centuries. The Hittites took part in the most well-attested confrontation of ancient warfare, the Battle of Kadesh. The Egyptians were the other side in this battle. So far, this episode has perhaps unfairly ignored the Egyptians. 
The last we saw them was in our previous episode, when peoples fleeing the desertification of the Sahara settled along the Nile River and established several kingdoms. Around 3150 BC, the last two of these kingdoms united. Around this same time, the Egyptian hieroglyphic system of writing was invented, or perhaps the idea was borrowed from the Sumerians. We are all familiar with many of the basics of Egyptian society, their preoccupation with the afterlife, their colossal pyramids and temples, their gods such as Ra, Thoth, Isis, and Set, and their dependence on the Nile. Without getting stuck in Egyptology, for the sake of this podcast, just know that ancient Egyptian history can be roughly split into Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms. Each is separated from the other by the disintegration of central control or conquest by a foreign people. During the New Kingdom, the pharaohs brought Egypt to the height of its power and territorial control. Many of the most familiar pharaoh names come from this New Kingdom. Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, the woman pharaoh Hatshepsut, and Ramses the Great. Ramses ruled the New Kingdom at the height of its power. He came to the throne at age 26 and reigned for over 60 years. His moniker, The Great, was given for his long reign, his military successes, and his great works of infrastructure. He is the pharaoh who ordered the construction of the famous monuments at Abu Simbel, the ones that had to be moved during the construction of the Aswan Dam in the 1960s. Earlier in his reign, he led the construction of a new capital in Lower Egypt. Remember, that's the north. Traditionally, the Egyptian capital had been further south, a ways up the Nile River. The location of this new capital reflected the outward-looking attitude of Ramses and the new kingdom in general. From this new capital, the Egyptian empire could easily access its territory and vassals in the Levant and partake in the trade routes of the eastern Mediterranean Sea. This expansion of the Egyptian empire north into modern Palestine, Israel, and Lebanon occurred at the same time the Hittites had reached the height of their power and were beginning to expand south from Anatolia into the Levant. Conflict between the two empires was inevitable. Four years into his reign, Ramses led an army out of Egypt, across the Sinai, and up the coast of the Levant. During this campaign, he captured a city in modern Lebanon called Amuru. With the borders of his empire expanded, he returned south in triumph. There's just one problem. Amuru was a vassal of the Hittite Empire. The king of the Hittites, Muwatali, was not about to cede the city to the Egyptians and began to prepare a force to retake the city. Word of this must have reached Ramses because when the next campaign season arrived, he gathered a large army and headed back north. The Battle of Kadesh, which resulted when these two forces met, was not particularly impactful for the geopolitics of the day. Instead, its significance lies in the detail and quantity of records about the battle which survive. It is the first battle in recorded history in which we have both sides' perspectives. The battle took place outside the city of Kadesh, which the Hittites controlled. It sat next to the Orontes River in the north of modern Lebanon, near the future site of Antioch. The Hittite forces surprised the Egyptians while Ramses was separated from the main body of his army. While the pharaoh was still discussing strategy with his generals, the chariots of the Hittites rushed forward and scattered one company of the Egyptians, and then swung round and crashed into the Egyptian infantry again. 
By now, though, the surprise was wearing off, and the momentum began to shift as the heavy Hittite chariots had to slow down in dense lines, and many of them were killed. The Egyptian forces were regrouping, and began to push back the Hittites. Seeing his foray pushed back, Muwatali sent in the rest of his army. But now the Egyptians used the element of surprise for themselves, and their own reserves rushed out from the opposite side of the city and crashed into the Hittites. The Hittites were now pushed back against the river. A panic gripped the soldiers, and many fled into the water to escape across the river, leaving their chariots and weapons behind. The far shore proved to be elusive, however, and many drowned. According to this account, and the one published by Ramses, the Egyptians achieved a great victory that day. Modern historians, though, now consider the battle a draw, or even a Hittite victory. Evidence for this is that Kadesh, directly adjacent to the supposedly victorious Egyptian army, did not fall to the Egyptians. Quite the opposite. The Egyptians are the ones who retreated south. Instead, it was the Hittites who would continue to expand into Egyptian territory in the Levant in the coming years. But let's avoid making this into an episode on the Egyptian New Kingdom. We have a long way yet to go. Let's shift our focus a little to the west and look across the waters to the island-speckled Aegean. Part 2 At the south end of the Aegean, almost halfway between Greece and Egypt, lies the island of Crete. By the days of Ramses the Great, a civilization that was already centuries old called the island home. They were the Minoans. The first Minoans were probably descended from the early European farmers who, after the last ice age, moved out of the Middle East, across Anatolia, and into the Balkans. The earliest settlers of Crete lived in small villages, fishing on the shores and farming in the interior. Slowly, centers of commerce and trade grew on the island, and power consolidated into several cores. With this consolidation came the growth of social hierarchies. In several prominent cities, large palaces began to be built, most famously at Knossos. This palace's size and confusing layout influenced the later Greek legend of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. In fact, the name Minoan comes from the legendary Cretan king Minos, who offered Greek children to the Minotaur. We don't know what the Minoans called themselves. They seem to have borrowed their hieroglyphic system from the Egyptians and modified it to their own language. But the Minoan written language, called Linear A, has never been deciphered. The Minoans were at the heights of their culture and influence in the Mediterranean during the 1600s BC, with their culture spread across the Cyclades islands of the Aegean to the southern portions of Greece, the Peloponnese, and the coasts of Anatolia. But around 1600, a massive volcanic eruption devastated the area. On the island of Thera, modern Santorini, a volcano erupted, destroying most of the island. The central portion collapsed into the sea, as kilotons of ash and soot were pumped into the sky. At the same time, the collapse of the island sent out a tsunami which crashed into Crete and annihilated coastal areas. On Thera itself, the Minoan town of Akrotiri was buried by a pyroclastic flow and preserved, much like Pompeii would be, centuries later. Unlike Pompeii, though, no corpses and little of value was found in the town. It appears the people carefully evacuated prior to the eruption. 
Today, cruise ships drift over, and tourists on the cliff above look down on the submerged mountain. Many believe the story of the disastrous eruption and the destruction it caused was passed down through the centuries and became Plato's legend of Atlantis. The Minoans recovered from this devastation, but never quite reached the same heights. About a century later, they were conquered by their neighbors on the mainland, the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans were similar in ancestry to the Minoans, with a few differences. Unlike the Minoans, they had a small amount of steppe ancestry, somewhere between 5 and 15%, and spoke a different language than the Minoans. Their language is borrowed from the Indo-European steppe herders and is the direct ancestor of modern Greek. This was written in characters they borrowed from Linear A of the Minoans. We call it Linear B. Unlike the Minoan language, Linear B has been deciphered, making it the first written language in Europe we can understand. Civilization arose later among the Mycenaeans than the Minoans. In fact, it was probably the Cretans whose trade stimulated the development of society in mainland Greece. Their name comes from their chief city, Mycenae, located in the Peloponnese. But there were many other sites of Mycenaean culture, even at Athens. It was these Bronze Age Greeks who conquered the weakened Minoans on Crete. Their culture now stretched throughout the Aegean Sea. Conflict soon emerged with the Hittite-influenced cities on the Anatolian coast and the Mycenaeans. In the mid-1200s BC, a great war took place between the Mycenaeans and a city called Willusa. The Mycenaeans were victorious and Troy, uh, I mean Willusa, was destroyed. This war stuck in the memory of the Proto-Greek people, and Homer, centuries later, would weave the story into the epic tale of the Trojan War. From the Renaissance to the 19th century, the war between the Greeks and the Trojans was assumed to be merely a legend. At the turn of the 19th century, though, archaeologists found a city matching the description of Troy near the Hellespont, that thin strip of water separating Europe and Asia in modern Turkey. The ruins were found in many layers, but significantly, evidence points to a destruction of the city at the time period assumed to match with Homer's epic. Troy was only one of the Mycenaean targets. They expanded widely across the Mediterranean. The Trojan War was probably part of the Mycenaeans settling the Aegean coast of Asia Minor and Thrace. And as I mentioned, already by 1450 BC, they had invaded and conquered their elder Cretan cousins. Recent evidence also points to an invasion of Palestine and a settlement of Mycenaeans there. If you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible, you may recall the age-old enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines. DNA evidence from the last decade points to the Philistines being recent immigrants from across the sea in Greece. Troy was not the only city destroyed during this time. Around the year 1200 BC, an apocalypse occurred one that would end the sophisticated and interconnected world of the Late Bronze Age. The archaeological record shows year by year a creeping destruction spreading across the Mediterranean and Near East, from Greece and Anatolia to Assyria to Babylon. Over the course of as little as 20 years, city after city in succession was burned, looted, destroyed, abandoned. The devastation was so total that the period is called the Bronze Age Collapse. Few cities near the Mediterranean survived. The culprits for these crimes are cloaked in mystery, 
The sources we have, particularly the Egyptians, refer to them as the Sea People and cite a number of names for their ethnicity or ethnicities. The Egyptians defeated the Sea People twice in battle, first in 1207 BC and then again decisively in 1177 BC. This seems to have ended their destruction. But if these people did not rise from the foam of Poseidon's sea, where did they come from? And why did they suddenly appear, destroy, then vanish? Unfortunately, the answers aren't clear, and we must discuss mere theories. In brief, we'll cover a few theories on who they are and why they destroyed. Who? Perhaps the most likely guess is that the core of the Sea Peoples were Mycenaeans. But then, why did they attack themselves? Because the evidence is clear that the great palaces of Greece suffered total destruction during the collapse. Perhaps famine there led to internal conflict that led to external conquest. As drought set in, perhaps they destroyed each other and then went raiding across the sea to survive. Another somewhat less likely guess is that the Sea Peoples were made up of refugees from Troy or other Anatolians. An old theory proposes that the Sea People came from the Western Mediterranean, such as Italy, Sicily, or Sardinia even. This theory is based on interpretations of the Egyptians' list of regions the Sea People came from. For example, Shardana could be Sardinia, or Sheklesh could be Sicily. Maybe the most likely identity, based on the Egyptian sources, is that the Sea Peoples were a wide confederation of people who turned to raiding and piracy after the onset of famine. Here's a scenario for how things may have gone down. First, famine caused civil unrest in Mycenaean Greece. Rebels sacked and burned Mycenae, Pylos, and the other great palaces, one by one, at first in an attempt to feed themselves, and later purely for loot. Perhaps a charismatic leader gathered soldiers as they went from city to city. After destroying Greece, they swept across the Aegean, destroying Troy and the Hittite capital of Hattusha. In each new field of destruction, they added to their forces. They attacked Egypt in 1207, but were repelled, and they then turned to raiding the rich cities of Assyria and Mesopotamia. After 30 years, they then attacked Egypt again, and were defeated for good. This exact scenario likely isn't the truth. It's too neat. But something similar must have occurred. We've covered the who now, but what about why? Climate seems to have played a role. What is called the 3.2 kiloyear event marked a sudden climatic shift to colder and drier temperatures, leading to famine and thus political instability. There seems to have been a general systems collapse across the region. Society had become more and more complex and interdependent. A sudden disruption caused the fragile society to crumble. Perhaps it began with a drying climate and reduced grain yields in Egypt. An example may have been a scenario like this. Unable to afford the rising prices, Mycenaean raiders may have forcefully captured grain shipments bound for another Mycenaean city. The intended port city went hungry, and the Egyptians went without pay. Another factor theorized to have led to the destruction was a revolution in arms manufacturing. The invention of bronze casting led to a proliferation of arrowheads, spears, swords, and javelins made of bronze, and allowed infantry to stand against the dominant chariot armies of the time. 
Iron forging, initially invented in modern Romania, reached Greece and Anatolia at this time. Regardless of who or why, the what of the Bronze Age collapse was a general civilizational collapse that ushered in the Greek Dark Ages, the end of the Hittites, and a severe weakening of the Assyrians. Even the victorious Egyptians were severely weakened by the raids. The cultural, organizational, and artistic heights reached in the Bronze Age wouldn't be seen again for centuries. Numbers varied from place to place, but it's estimated the population was as much as 50% lower in 1100 BC than it had been in 1200 BC. But not every city was destroyed. The collapse of the regional powers left a vacuum for other people to fill. Part 3 in what is now modern Lebanon, several great trading cities, collectively known as Phoenicia, not only survived, but began to prosper. The chief of these cities were Tyre, Byblos, and Tripoli. The Phoenicians were a Semitic people, who for long had been under the rule or influence of the Egyptians or Hittites. They and their cities had been there for millennia, trading with Cyprus, the Minoans, Egypt, and even further afield. They had always been traders, but the Bronze Age collapse opened up opportunities for them to dominate trade in the eastern Mediterranean. Like their earlier Sumerian and later Greek trading partners, they were organized into city-states and were more of a shared culture than a shared government. Their political system seems to have been run by oligarchies of wealthy traders. They have left behind a legacy which, if you were reading this transcript, would be right before your eyes. The earliest writings of the Phoenicians were based on Egyptian hieroglyphs. By 1100 BC, however, the Phoenicians had adapted their writing in an innovative way. Instead of each symbol having a distinct meaning, for the first time, each symbol represented a sound, a phoneme. This made reading the language incredibly easy. In comparison to having to learn thousands of characters to read a single document, now, one only needed to memorize the sound associated with 20-odd symbols and piece them together to sound out a word. This made record-keeping, which is essential for profitable trade, and trade itself far simpler. The peak of Phoenician power and influence lasted from around 1200 to 800 BC, when they came under the influence of the growing Mesopotamian powers of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. But we'll get to them soon. The Phoenicians also had to contend with the resurgence of trading competition from Greece, which had lain dormant during the Greek Dark Ages. By 900 BC, the Greeks had recovered much of their population and influence and had begun to establish colonies across the Mediterranean. In competition with them, the Phoenicians also established colonies, mainly on the North African coast, but also on Sicily, the Balearic Isles, and southern Spain. Most of these colonies were small, with less than a thousand people, and were more like trading outposts than true population centers. There were exceptions to this, however. In modern Tunisia, in 814 BC, the colony of Carthage was established. It would, before long, expand beyond a mere colony to become a large city and eventually rival its great enemy and antithesis, Rome, which was founded just 38 years afterward. To the south of the Phoenicians, another Semitic people, the Israelites, enter the historical record around this time. The first mention of Israel in writing comes from the Egyptian Merneptah Stel, dated to 1208 BC. 
The stele is a record of the Pharaoh's campaign through Canaan and mentions the word Israel as a demonym, or the name of a people group. They had previously been a herding people limited to the hills of Palestine, but it appears the Israelites took advantage of the weakened Egyptian power in the region, came down into the fertile lowlands, and gained control of the southern Levant. The archaeological picture is hazy at this point, but many scholars agree with the biblical account of a united monarchy of Israelites ruling in Canaan around 1050 BC. Where evidence is more clear is in the divided kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south shortly after that. The north kingdom had its capital at Samaria, and the south had its at Jerusalem. Worship of a god named Yahweh became increasingly influential in the following centuries, although worship of other gods such as Baal, Asherah, and Moloch remained relatively common. The first extra-biblical mention of Yahweh we have is in a stele found in Moab dating from around 830 BC. These Hebrew kingdoms remained small players on the geopolitical chessboard, afterthoughts to the great powers of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Their survival depended on staying out of the notice of the great powers and in skillfully shifting their alliances. In 722, however, as the Assyrian Empire expanded, gobbling up its neighbors in Mesopotamia and the Levant, it took notice of the Kingdom of Israel and sacked the capital, Samaria. Many of the survivors were deported to distant lands and new settlers were brought in to replace them. This was part of the Assyrian strategy for preventing revolts, disconnecting peoples from their homelands. The northern kingdom was no more. Just 20 years later, the new Assyrian king, Sennacherib, continued the conquests of the Levant by invading the other Hebrew polity, the kingdom of Judah. In 701, Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem, which had grown rapidly in the past couple of decades from refugees from the fallen northern kingdom. The Assyrian record states that Sennacherib destroyed 46 towns in Judah and trapped the king of Judah, Hezekiah, inside Jerusalem, quote, like a caged bird. But somehow, although it was besieged, the city escaped capture. The Greek historian Herodotus claimed that the army was overrun by mice, which some modern historians believe points to an outbreak of plague in the Assyrian camp. The Judahites looked out at the retreating Assyrian armies and could not help but thank their god for deliverance. Despite the survival of the kingdom of Judah, it was now much reduced in power and it had become a vassal state of Assyria, paying tribute to avoid destruction. Outside the Levant, the era of Assyrian domination was ending. The Assyrian Empire began to collapse in the second half of the 600s BC, and both Egypt and Babylon stepped up to fill the vacuum. An army of Judah, led by King Josiah, attempted to ambush an Egyptian expedition to the Euphrates in an attempt to help their current allies, the Babylonians. The army was scattered, King Josiah was killed, and in retaliation, Egypt made Judah pay heavy tribute. Just three years later, the great Battle of Carchemish took place, in which the remnants of Assyria, along with the Egyptians, fought the Babylonians with their Persian and Scythian allies. The Babylonians were victorious, and now clearly the ascendant power in the region. In response, the king of Judah shifted his tribute from Egypt to Babylon. Two years later, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, attempted to invade Egypt, but was repulsed with heavy losses. This defeat emboldened many of the small states in the Middle East, 
And the king of Judah ceased paying tribute to the Babylonians and shifted allegiance back around to the Egyptians. You can see how the game of politics was one of constantly shifting alliances to the party least likely to conquer. This tactic had saved Judah many times in the past, but Nebuchadnezzar would not be tolerant of rebellions. In 599 BC, his Babylonian armies swept down into the Levant and put Jerusalem under siege. The defenders withstood the Babylonians for two years, but on March 16th, 597 BC, the city fell. The city itself and the temple to Yahweh was pillaged, and its wealth was carted off to Babylon. Judah remained intact, though even further reduced in size, as a vassal to Babylon. 10,000 of its population, including craftsmen and the elite of Jerusalem, were forced out of Judah and were dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem was mostly abandoned. This was the exile of Judah. It would prove to be a short one, but not the last one the Jews would face. Sixty years after the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, the Babylonians found themselves conquered by a new empire, the Achaemenid Persians. These were not the first Iranian people to appear on the Mesopotamian chessboard. The Medes, another Iranian people, had been major nuisances to Babylon and Assyria for centuries. In 550 BC, a Persian ruler named Cyrus rebelled against his Median rulers, captured the king, and took the capital for himself. In a moment, Cyrus had transformed himself from upstart to emperor. Many surrounding states viewed this coup as a chance to rid themselves of Median rule and threw out diplomats and stopped paying tribute. This gave Cyrus the perfect opportunity to assert his authority. He conquered the Lydian kingdom of Anatolia in 546 BC and incorporated it into his realm. Hostilities also arose with the larger powers, Egypt and Babylon. For the first decade of his rule, small conflicts between Babylon and Persia were the rule. But in 539 BC, conflict erupted to the surface. In the Battle of Opus, the Persians won a resounding victory. Then, to conquer the city of Babylon itself, the Persians devised a plan. Herodotus reports that its walls were impenetrable, and entry into the city through the Euphrates River was blocked by a metal gate. So the Persians simply diverted the river itself, allowing the soldiers to enter the city through the lowered river. The Babylonians, totally taken by surprise, surrendered. Babylon had fallen. The Persian Empire would go on to conquer Egypt as well in 525 BC. The Persian Empire now stretched from Central Asia to Anatolia, across the Middle East, and down to Egypt. It was the largest empire in history up to this point. One factor leading to the success of the Persians was its tolerance. The Syrians and Babylonians of the prior centuries had ruled through cruelty and fear, but the Persians chose another path, which helped them maintain their huge multicultural empire. One example of their kindness was in allowing exiled people to return to their homelands. This included the Jews in exile who now returned to Judah and repopulated Jerusalem. They were even allowed to rebuild the temple to Yahweh. We have only just started discussing the Persians, but already we have to step away from the Middle East and look back across the Aegean to Greece, which we've left alone for the past 600 years. Before we end this episode and immerse ourselves again in the Aegean, let's take a look around our map in the year 500 BC. What was going on across the rest of Europe? In much of Western Europe at this time, the Celts were dominant. 
The Celts were not a unified people, nor homogenous in ancestry, but it's more that they shared a culture and a language family. They spoke Celtic languages, yet another one of those descendants of the Indo-Europeans. The Celtic language family is most closely related to the Italic languages, including Latin. The regions with the strongest Celtic presence were the British Isles, France, and Western Germany. In Spain, the inhabitants are often called Celtiberians, as they were either partially Celtic in ancestry, or maybe the locals had merely adopted Celtic culture. Along the Mediterranean coast were various colonies of the Phoenicians, mostly in North Africa, as we mentioned, and some in southern Spain. And there were the Greeks, who had colonies everywhere. Of note, though, is their strong presence in Sicily and southern Italy. North of the Greeks and Italy were various Italic tribes. We'll talk about that one in the fourth prologue episode. By 500 BC, a certain Latin city had come to prominence, but was still confined to a small region of central Italy. We'll talk about the city much more in the fourth prologue episode. Farther north still were the Etruscans. Unlike their neighbors, they spoke a non-Indo-European language that has not yet been deciphered. Across the Alps were still more Celts in modern Switzerland, Austria, and southern Germany. At this time, the Germanic people were still located exclusively in northern Germany, along the Baltic Sea, and in Scandinavia. Heading south again and hugging the Adriatic were the Illyrians, and farther south in the Balkans, particularly near the meeting of the Black Sea and the Aegean, were the Thracians. North of them stretched the vast expanse of the Eurasian steppe, where the Indo-Europeans had originated. In 500 BC, a people known as the Scythians lived in the steppe lands north of the Black Sea, in modern Moldova, Ukraine, and Russia. The Scythians were a nomadic steppe people, and were early masters of a horse-based lifestyle and horse-based combat. And that wraps up our tour of what will be the Western world. But let's peek further afield, just for a moment. Although not directly tied to our story, this may help to frame and give context to the happenings of the Mediterranean world. Here's the big news from elsewhere around the world, around the year 500 BC. In the Indian subcontinent, the Buddha reached enlightenment under a banyan tree. His followers had begun to spread the message of his method. China at the time was divided, and in its warring states period, it was during this time that Confucius began his teachings. In Persia, Zoroaster began to preach the worship of the god of goodness, light, and order, Ahura Mazda, who was locked in the dualistic battle with the god of evil and chaos. And across the Atlantic, the Olmec culture and the Mayans in Mesoamerica began to build monumental architecture. Let's close this episode as the light fades on our map of the world in 500 BC. Thanks for joining me in this sprint through the ancient world. When we began this episode, civilization was young, writing was new, no empire had yet risen. At the end of our episode, the world has recovered from the Bronze Age collapse, and long-distance trade darts across the Mediterranean and crisscrosses the Silk Road. In the next episode, our camera will zoom in on the Aegean, and will focus on one of the pillars of Western civilization, the Greeks. See you next time.